listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept, when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps, for there our captors asked of us songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion! How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. I got to get better disclaimers. Sorry about that. Thank you, Lori. Um, <clears throat> good morning, everyone. Buckle your seatbelts because uh, this is going to get interesting with a reading like that. Uh, we're talking about cursing psalms this week. Um, and if you couldn't tell by that reading, um, this is some of the darkest material in the book of Psalms. Um, these are the psalms that we do not read in church, typically. Uh, there aren't a lot of hymns and worship songs based on uh, these. No pastor in their right mind would preach a sermon on Psalm 137. <laughs> but you hired me, so technically, <clears throat> this is really on you. Uh, we're about midway through uh, this series we're doing on the book of Psalms, where every week... Uh, we're exploring a different genre of poetry, a different type of psalm found in the book of Psalms. Here's a chart that we've been referring to throughout this series that shows the major genres, not all of them, but the big ones. Uh, we've already covered praise psalms, thanksgiving, lament, and wisdom. And this week we're talking about cursing psalms. But if you'll look closely, you'll notice that cursing psalms are not listed on this chart. That's because cursing psalms are really more of a subgenre of the psalms. This is like a subgenre of lament. The general psalms that express sadness and grief and anger, cursing psalms kind of fit uh, right in there. These are a very particular type of lament where the psalmist is actually asking God to curse their enemies. There's about 15 cursing psalms in the book of Psalms. So that's a tenth of the book, 10% of the book is cursing psalms. Um, that makes this genre larger than uh, the wisdom genre, which we looked at last week and a few of the other major genres. Um, and most of these psalms get really, really dark. You are not at your best when you're asking God to smite your enemies. And Psalm 137, our scripture reading for today, this is a particularly notorious cursing psalm where the writer asks God, to basically curse their enemies by dashing their children against the rock. Every week in this series, 
Uh, We've been singing the psalms together. Um, Usually our scripture reading has been read, um, but Paige specifically asked not to sing this psalm, which makes sense, right? I mean, this is a terrible psalm. This is a hard psalm to read, let alone sing. Now, Lori didn't have a problem reading it, so I'm not sure what that says about her. Um, (laughs) That's true. That's true. But yeah, this, uh, this is a tricky one. What I want to do today, uh, for the next 20 minutes or so, I want to get a handle on this particular psalm. I want to start here with Psalm 137 and see um, if we can't shed some light on this terrible bit of poetry. After we do that, though, I want to zoom out a bit and talk about these cursing psalms a bit more broadly and what wisdom, if any, um, we can glean from this particularly dark subgenre of psalms. Does that sound like a plan? Good. People are nodding. Excellent. Um, Now, if you've been here for any amount of time, you already know this, but context is everything when we read the Bible. And to understand Psalm 137, you have to understand the experience of exile in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. The year is 587 B.C. That's when the Babylonian Empire swept through and conquered Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish uh, homeland. And conquered is really sugarcoating it. They destroyed Jerusalem. And they nearly wiped out the Jewish population in the process. This is a historical event. Uh, You can look this up. Uh, You can read about it in the Bible in books like Daniel and 2 Kings. Um, The Babylonians documented this conquest. The Jews documented it. This happened. The Babylonians invaded Judah, the Jewish homeland. They destroyed all the smaller towns and villages. The survivors all fled to Jerusalem, the capital, which was like the most well-enforced city. It had the biggest walls. It had an army. And then the Babylonians laid siege to the city for months. There was a famine. A number of people died in the famine. And then eventually the Babylonian army broke through the walls, and they destroyed everything homes, palaces, the temple. It was total devastation. Um, Scholars estimate that upwards of 80% of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were killed uh, in the the genocide. That's 80% of everyone. Men, women, children, young and old. It didn't matter. 80% of the population was gone. Then the survivors were forced to march to Babylon, which is, think like Iraq vaguely today, from Israel to Babylon, sort of a death march. And then the ones who made it were exiled in Babylon for about 40 to 70 years, depending on how you count it. This is what empires do, right? Like, we've seen this story play out in our history books over and over and over again. Not much has changed in 2,600 years. When the empire finds a piece of land that it wants, it takes it, regardless of whether or not it is presently inhabited. This is eerily similar to what a lot of our ancestors did to the native inhabitants of this land. When the empire finds a new property that it wants, it takes it. You move in, you slaughter the population, You relocate the survivors, hoping that most of them will die on the journey, and that the rest will just assimilate into the empire. That's what empires do over and over again. We've seen this throughout history. 
And this particular event, the trauma of the Babylonian genocide of the Jews, is the backdrop of this psalm. You've got to understand that when you read Psalm 137. A lot of times when we read the Bible, it's kind of hard to pinpoint the exact context of what we're reading. This one is pretty darn on the nose. This is a song being sung by the survivors of the Babylonian genocide. And here's what they have to say. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. That's a nickname for Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. What's happening here is these, these survivors of genocide now find themselves exiled very far away from home, in the heart of the empire, where their Babylonian captors are mocking them. They're saying, take your harps, sing us a song. We've heard these beautiful songs you sing to your God. Why don't you sing one of those now? That's the backdrop for this. And so the psalmist offers a song. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. The Edomites were one of the historic enemies of uh, the Jewish people of ancient Israel. It was one of their neighbors they were often in conflict with, um, who were apparently watching as the Babylonians swept in and cheering it on. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. And then the psalmist turns their attention to Babylon. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy or blessed shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. This is really raw. I mean, this is, this is raw rage and emotion and hurt. I don't know exactly who wrote this psalm. The text doesn't give us a name. But I can feel what they're feeling, and it is horrifying. This psalm is very likely coming from someone who lost a child in genocide. They've been taken from their homes. They maybe lost their entire family. And so when they find a voice to sing a song to God, the song they sing, the prayer they pray, is a song of cursing. Pay back my enemies for what they did to me. It's terrifying. It's gut-wrenching. And I don't know about you, but it, for me, is totally relatable. The mere presence of a psalm like this, or really 15 psalms like this in our Bibles, really does raise some serious questions like, um, are we allowed to pray like this? Like, should Christians today offer these kind of prayers? Should we be singing these psalms? Should we be asking God to return evil for evil and crush our enemies? Is that all right to do? Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Does that mean we don't curse them? If that's the case, what do we do with these psalms? Do you see the catch-22 here that I've been wrestling with all week 
and now I give it to you. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, I'll show my hands here. I'll give you a, kind of my opinion on this. Uh, personally, I don't think we should sing these psalms, not as a regular practice at least, like not as a general thing to do. Um, I don't know that that would be healthy. As Christians, I don't think it's okay to curse our enemies, but, and this is a very important but, I've never been the victim of this kind of trauma. I've never gone through anything even remotely close to what the Jewish exiles went through at the hand of the Babylonians. I don't know what it would be like to be exiled. I don't know what it would be like to lose my home, my family, to be separated from my children. But if I was a refugee right now, if I was someone uh, fleeing violence in a place like Syria, or if I was an undocumented immigrant separated from my children, I think I'd be glad that psalms like these exist in the Bible. I think it might be a blessing in those situations to have prayers like this represented in Scripture. To know that God makes space for these sorts of feelings and experiences, even as dark as these. These cursing psalms really hold nothing back. And while I don't think it's healthy to like, make this a regular part of your prayer life, a part of me is really glad that stuff like this made the cut and wound up in the Bible. I think it says something about the tradition we stand in and the God we serve, that there's room for stuff that's this dark. Even Psalm 137 has a place. So, if Christians shouldn't make a habit out of like regularly praying these kind of psalms, what can we glean with psalms like these? What wisdom should we take away um, from stuff like Psalm 137 and these terrible cursing psalms? <clears throat> There's a few things, a few uh, tidbits I want to tease out. First, I think it's important to note, these psalms acknowledge that enemies exist. That's an important lesson to remember. Our culture tends to be very conflict-avoidant. Uh, we try to play nice and get along with everyone, generally. Some people are jerks and don't do that, but for the most part, we try to play nice and get along with everybody. Sometimes that's not healthy, though. Like, this can be even worse for Christians who misunderstand Jesus' teachings about enemies. Oftentimes we assume that as Christians we're not supposed to have enemies, that we're supposed to get along with everyone, that if there's someone who's out to get you or angry at you, clearly you've made a mistake and done something wrong because Christians don't have enemies. That's not how it works. Enemies exist. They're real. There really are people who mean to harm you, toxic people, abusive people, petty people, people who are just unhealthy to be around, we're not commanded to pretend that our enemies are our friends. That's not the command. The command is to love your enemies, and that is a key difference. Sometimes loving your enemies means staying away from them. It means uh, setting some boundaries and creating healthy distance so that you don't get dragged down into their toxicity. Um, sometimes it means that you pray for them. Sometimes it means when they go low, we go high. Christians are never commanded to naively pretend that our enemies are our friends. I really want to make sure you hear that. We're commanded to love our enemies. That distinction is super important. 
enemies exist. That's one takeaway from the cursing psalms. Another that I think is important, these psalms acknowledge the existence of evil and the necessity for justice. If you look at any of these 15 psalms that we have in our Bibles, these cursing psalms, beyond all the cringeworthy calls to violence and the graphic details, at their heart, these are psalms crying out for justice. These are songs and prayers where the psalmist is demanding that God show up and set things right. We don't talk about this often enough, but God is not a neutral observer of the world. As if God is just kind of detached, watching things play out. As Christians, we believe that God loves everyone, and that's true no matter how broken or wicked or evil a person is, there's still a beloved creation of God. But God is not a neutral party in matters of injustice. God takes sides. At the segregated uh, cafeteria counters in the 1950s, God took a side. When um, Muslims are rounded up in China and forced into concentration camps, God takes a side. When innocent bystanders are killed in drone strikes, God takes a side. The Bible points us over and over again to the God who sides with the oppressed in their struggle for justice. The Bible speaks about a God who topples empires, who delivers slaves out of Egypt and drowns Pharaoh's army in the sea. A God who returns exiles to their homeland and brings corrupt leaders to their knees. A lot of times we bristle at the more violent stuff in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and and like rightfully we should, it offends our modern sensibilities. But the harshest stuff in the Bible is almost always reserved for God's judgment of injustice. Those who profit off of violence and the exploitation of others. That's when things really heat up in the Bible. And the cursing psalms are a warning that those who thrive on injustice and violence will be held accountable by God one way or the other. This could be a really hard thing for us to stomach, and we're not supposed to root for this. I think that's pretty important to say. But for those at the margins of our society, a God who holds the wicked accountable can come as incredibly good news. Evil exists. Enemies exist. Justice is necessary. One more takeaway, and um, this one's crucial in light of just kind of how dark this material is and everything we've been talking about up to now. By asking God to curse the enemy, these psalms put vengeance in God's hand. That's incredibly important. Often when it comes to like injustice, when people wrong us or hurt us, our tendency is to strike back. You hit me, I hit you. You bomb us, we bomb you. When human beings take matters into our own hands, we tend to make a mess of it. The violence tends to escalate. But for the exiles who prayed these cursing psalms, once you've trusted God to hold your enemies accountable, there's no need to seek revenge. There's no need to take matters into your own hands if you've asked God to curse your enemies. God's got it. 
If someone thrives on violence and destruction, it will eventually come back to bite them. That's how it works. That's how God designed this world of ours. It's one of the few universally recognized truths. Every culture, every religion has a word for it, karma, fate, juju, you know, whatever, whatever word you want to use. The Christian version of that is you reap what you sow. Violence begets violence. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. It's not my job to pay back evil for evil. It's not your job either. That's God's responsibility. And of course, society has a responsibility to maintain justice as well, of course, enforce laws, deal out punishments. But on a person-to-person level, it is not our job to get even. Our job is to take whatever hate, whatever vengeance, whatever stuff we're carrying toward an enemy and hand it over to God so that we can be freed to love our enemies. Thank you. That's a good amen line. (laughs) I like that. Because if we don't, if you dwell on this stuff, it will destroy you. Violence begets violence works internally as well. One final observation about cursing. Um, This one's based on something Paul wrote in his letter to uh, the church in Galatia. I'm going to read it for you now. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we read this. I think this is really central. This will be on the screen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slaver free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Any teaching on cursing would be incomplete without acknowledging that Jesus became the curse for us. To be crucified by the Romans was like the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate curse, especially for someone thought to be the Messiah. That's like number one things messiahs don't do. You don't get crucified. Crucifixion was reserved for uh, the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low. Um, Murderers, uh, slaves, those without any rights, uh, political revolutionaries, and occasionally subversive preachers who went around declaring an alternative kingdom to that of Caesar. Jesus became the curse for us. The curse he bore on the cross was the curse to end all curses. The curse he bore releases us from our need to get even and curse others, allowing us to become one in Christ. That's what we commemorate, that's what we celebrate every month when we come to this communion table. We come here to remember and to reenact that final curse, to remember what we've been rescued from, what we've been released from and to celebrate Christ's gift to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for becoming the curse. Thank you for relieving us of the need to get even and seek revenge. Thank you for taking responsibility for our pain and our hurt. God, we offer our prayers right now for anyone 
in this room who's carrying some guilt or shame or rage toward an enemy. God, take that burden off of our shoulders right now. Give us freedom. Help us to trust you to make all things new. And thank you, God, for your sacrifice. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.